exercise and nutrition as we age and are you confused by the science? That is today's show. Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is show 356 and I have the wonderful Mickey Willardon joining us on the show. And I wanted to have Mickey on as we explored this topic of exercise, nutrition, what the science is telling us up to the minute, uh, because she's such an encourager. She has a PhD. She has literally been reading and exploring and analysing scientific papers uh, for a couple of decades now. And so she is very good at not only helping us decipher what we should be doing, uh, but also encouraging us to find something that works for us. However, we might be eating right now, whatever level of capacity we might have right now. She's absolutely about meeting people where they are and taking them on that personal journey. And when you listen to her podcast, Wikipedia, Wikipedia, uh, play on Wikipedia, is uh, you can just feel her encouragement. You can see it on her socials and it's absolutely why I wanted to have her on. So her master's was in preventing childhood obesity and how uh, how it is that children are becoming obese, uh, which we talk about a little bit at the start of the show, and then into her PhD on public health uh, in uh, how do we have more health, healthier people in the workplace. Uh, and that was fascinating to talk to her about that, uh, being someone who often talks about the implication of dirty air conditioning on the average person working in an office building. Uh, but she obviously wasn't coming at it from a mould perspective, but together we actually explored it again at the start of the show and it was fascinating to have a chat about because there are so many things that play into that really healthy workspace that we can all be a part of. Uh, And then, of course, now she champions women's health, especially focused on that trickier phase as hormones start to change in midlife and how we might need to look at what we're eating, how we're exercising, how we're recovering from exercise uh, and how we're sleeping to have uh, a really vital uh, energy carrying through those years. Uh, And yes, she believes it is possible. So I'll hook into that conversation in just a little minute. I want to thank our major sponsor, Oz Climate, for their wonderful Winix air purifiers and dehumidification range. Uh, But I also want to highlight the hygrometer. So they have humidity temperature gauges that you can stick on the fridge or or put on a a mantelpiece um, or inside a wardrobe. We've got one of ours in there to constantly be gauging your humidity. If you listen to the show live, if you're an Australian, and especially if you're on the East Coast where it tends to get very humid shortly and that carries through for three or four months, then you want to know what your humidity is indoors. Why? Because over 60% humidity is where microbial growth is going to encourage, it's going to grow. Uh, That's what it needs. It needs that, that moisture. And so if you can see constantly 
which rooms, like you might have a shadier part of the house that struggles to dry out uh, as fast as other parts of the house. So you might see, oh, that back bedroom or the back study really needs a bit of help. And I find I often need to put the dehumidifier on in there because it's often above 60%. Now, once you've ruled out water damage or uh, structural issues or just making sure there is no um, leaking going on in that part of the house, of course, outside of that, and you have a healthy home and it's just a bit shady and it takes a bit longer to dry once it's rained, then knowing that you need to be using dehumidifiers in that part of the house uh, is a game changer because you can actually prevent mold becoming a problem in those otherwise healthy houses that just need a helping hand at certain times, like in a bathroom when we've had three showers on the trot and it's really high humidity, and then often we flick off the switch and we flick off the extractor fan and we leave. And then it's just this wet 90% humidity bathroom that just sits there day after day, never really getting to dry out. And we wonder why my DMs get flooded with, how do I clean my grout and silicone with mold? How about we not have it in the first place, right? So get your dehumidification strategy in order ahead of the summer months. Use the code LOTOXLIFE for your 10% off the already discounted prices uh, and look at uh, the size of your room. Like, for example, a laundry or a bathroom are only going to need an 11 or a 16 litre compact unit to dry them out. But if it's a larger bedroom or a living dining combined, then you are going to, in that case, need their largest unit. And sometimes in really big spaces, especially when you have mezzanines and there's a huge wide open area, you may need two large units to really cut through the humidity. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, I'll open the windows. That'll create airflow. But if it's 75, 80% humidity outside or it's raining, that's only going to bring more moisture inside. So let's get that dehumidification literacy happening. Let's get those hygrometers so we can assess when it's going over 60% humidity and there might be more of a, an environment for microbial growth. And let's continually be drying out the parts of our homes that need it. They, of course, have the Winix Air Purifiers as well. Huge fan of those. And again, 10% off Lotox Life is your code. Now, this month we have BioFirst also joining us. And BioFirst are an Australian company, but this is for Australians and the US, which is awesome. Code is Lotox Life again, 15% off the range. Now, uh, they are very specialized in not only supporting the skin to feel calmer when it is stressed or when there's a problem like eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis or hives, um, but it also works as a brand with the mission to heal what is going on. So you know when you often get prescribed those creams uh, by the dermatologist or the doctor and you go and you use the steroid cream and then the minute you stop using it, the problem comes back. Obviously, as a low toxic, you know that you might need to be investigating internal health situations like gut health uh, and stress levels. But outside of that, if you're doing all the right things and you just have some, some weak spots in your skin, uh, I've had it before where I've had a, like a little rough patches after sun exposure. Something like the Manuka Skin Saver 
using it as a moisturizer for a few days at the end of the luteal phase to just calm the farm uh, or the ultra skin rescue lotion for uh, eczema incredible stuff so I'm a huge fan of their products their um, self-heal salve as a bit of an SOS uh, cream as well that really supports the skin's healing mechanisms uh, is wonderful so you have 15% off their range and they also have a nifty little uh, throat spray for kids if you need a bit of immune and soothing support, especially for the American listeners heading into winter. So 15% off code LOTOXLIFE. And I encourage you to have a look at the reviews on their website because for me, that speaks volumes. And it's not just on their website where they control what's get, what gets published, but even other places that they're stocked you will see the reviews are rave, rave, rave. And it has been wonderful to see the community say, hey, have you got another BioFirst special coming up on the podcast? Uh, because for me, that says absolutely was I right in uh, saying yes to that partnership and collaboration. So enjoy the sponsors helping you make your low-tox swaps. And now let's head into this fabulous chat with Mickey Willardin, PhD. Hello, Mickey. How are you? Alex, what an honour to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for asking me to come and chat to you today. Uh, I'm so thrilled to have you. I've spotted a few things like your hot take on some things that really resonated because, yes, you teach certain ways of doing things, but you make so much space for grey area and for where everyone is at and the different things that might play into how one needs to approach health, wellness, fitness, weight loss, all of the above. And I just think the internet needs a lot more of that. And so it is an absolute pleasure to have you on because the things we're going to talk about today speak to exactly that. I completely agree. And I mean, I'm sure we'll touch on that as we go along, Alex, but I feel like so much of social media space, and I'm not saying I never do this because I do, but we're often told what we do wrong. Mm. And so you go onto social media and you're doing your exercise wrong, you're sleeping wrong, you're working wrong, you're eating wrong. And it's, it's almost like you get told off at every turn. I know. And it's the clickbait thing, right? I can see yes. all the reels now are like, if you're doing this, you have to stop. And you're just like, fuck. I know. <laughs> I know. And it puts people in this absolute like like downward spiral and yeah. they get really overwhelmed with, with what to do. So, and look, I'm not saying I never sort of give advice on on the the best ways to do things in my pers- from my perspective but i feel like we could do a bit more of sort of supporting people where they're at yeah totally agree it's where i've always played myself and uh and i think i always tell the funny story which is not so funny for the first 2 weeks that the course was first running but the first time i ran golo tox which is a 22 topic everyday life, uh, reducing environmental toxic load. It was called 30 Days to Your Low-Tox Life. And I was just like, oh, God, everyone's freaking out, thinking they have to actually (laughs) get this done in a month. Um, There's no chance you're going to replace your kettle, your mattresses, your skincare, your cleaning. No. So I think that was a really fantastic lesson as an educator in the health and wellness space, really nice and early on. Um, to bring that positive psychology piece front and centre so that people feel supported no matter what they're able to do right now, right? 
Yeah, totally. And and I understand where these sort of posts come from because people are looking for answers, you know, yeah. and they're going on to social media. They're reading articles to sort of tell them to be instructive and let them know what they need to be doing in order to, you know, feel fitter, feel stronger, feel confident around food and capable of making really good decisions. But it's really easy to get caught up in all the things you're doing wrong and, and then hard to sort of see, you know, you know, the the fundamentals, what you could be working on. That a lot of people major in the minors, you know, and they get caught up in that without actually thinking about the sort of big picture, I think. Yeah. And, and yeah, uh, the hyper externalization of health as well. Yes. Like this is like, oh, maybe it's just that one supplement that I've never heard of before and I've got yes. to keep looking. And it's like, well, how did you feel after that meal? Let's start yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So speaking of starting there, I want to crack on with some of the questions I have to ask you, but I want to ask you about your studies because you at the master's and PhD level did two quite different things. Um, and I just want a little top line, what you found out when you were doing your master's and created uh, through that a, a program to prevent childhood obesity. And I mean, we know the rate rises are tragic in that space. If you look back and if you think about the things that have just held true over the years from what you studied then, how do we foster um, that healthy weight for our kids? What are, what are the biggest things? Well, I mean, I think, I suppose the quite obvious thing is, Alex, is that I did my master's back in 99. So mm. that was like 20, almost 25 years ago now. And clearly we haven't cracked the nut. We have not. Obesity. Um, mm -hmm. But a couple of the big take homes for me with that was that my parents didn't really know that their children were overweight. And I just think that fundamentally, if you can't sort of, if you don't have the awareness of the potential health risk your kid is at, then it's really hard to um, to make changes for the betterment of your child, right? So when you and I were young, like the, you know, seldom did you see a child that was overweight actually I may may have had one or two in my classes leading up to high school and then maybe like a like a couple more whereas the skinny kids back in 99 which I I think would be true today as well I don't see why it would be different they're called skinny kids but in fact they're normal weight and so there was that lack of awareness from parents and that's something which I really um which sort of has obviously stayed with me over the years um, but a couple of things from a, a from a, a not a parenting thing, but I guess just a global sort of environmental thing is that your kids will eat what you bring into the home. And although although as parents we can't control a lot of what they do outside of the house, and that is, you know, we control a lot more when they're young. Obviously, as teenagers, we control a lot less. But often I have a conversation with parents and they're like, oh, little Johnny just can't control himself around chips. And it's like, you're bringing the chips into the home. So, you know, maybe there's a change that you can make there. So thinking about the environment that the kids are in, I think that's that that could do a good you know that could be quite um useful for some for some families not all um a couple of other things would be role modeling healthy eating and that seems really obvious maybe to your listeners because obviously they're very health oriented but there are so many households where that doesn't actually happen you know the parents and the children don't eat together 
Um, they eat differently. Um, and the kids never really see what a healthy plate might look like. Or the parents don't often, or if the kid sort of rejects a food once, then they're not going to try it again. Whereas tastes change over time as well. And it takes over 10 exposures to a food for a child's palate to get used to it. If we listen to research, you know, I know research is quite different from what's actually happening in the household, but um, just role modeling healthy eating and and repeat exposure to foods they might not like and have them in different ways you know all of those things ultimately though um providing them with nutrients that help them grow and develop that is key because kids you know we don't it doesn't take much to find uh sort of processed refined food for children or basically the, the whole idea of kids food is it, it's awful processed refined food yeah it is. Whereas, you know, and, and parents think they need to feed their children either dairy-free milk or low-fat dairy from, you know, the age of two. They worry about uh, like eggs and they worry about foods which are actually providing really good nutrition for kids. Like you get nutrition from proteins and fats. That's mm. how we get those essential nutrients that they need for growth and development in their brain. And I don't think we need to... Uh, go searching for for carbohydrate because it's just there anyway i think really make all the opportunity you can for parents to for parents to sort of feed their children the, the foods that they need mm. that's in a, in a nutshell there you go. no and it's it's great and you know our pediatrician uh for seb is uh vegan herself actually but she makes sure he's having two eggs not one for breakfast so you know, people can have their personal choices as as medical professionals, but to know what a, jo- a growing child needs, I've always appreciated that um, objectivity. Uh, and I think that's the spot of an actual professional in this space when you don't need all of your clients to go along with all of your beliefs if, you know, something different is going to be better for them, um, which eggs are just miracle foods for kitties. Um And so then you go on to a PhD and this one was interesting because it was public health and nutrition and it was about workplace productivity. And I have a personal passion in this area, which we're talking about before hitting record for dirty air conditioning and how it poisons the, the workplace. And if you were quite a stressed out individual who was already setting the stage for being more affected by environmental toxins, then you could be having brain fog, uh, brain inflammation that you don't even need to be having uh, if air conditioning systems were properly cleaned in commercial buildings and schools for that matter. What are some of the other things you found in that PhD? Because there must, I mean, I'm thinking of the staff rooms with all the junk that companies think they're doing, like, you know, perks, um, that kind of stuff. Was I mean, what, what were the findings? So a, a key finding I found in terms of people who engaged in behaviours which we know to keep us healthy, like, so um, meeting the recommendation for fruit and vegetables, which you and I both know are, you know, not that hard to do really, um, who engage in enough physical activity, who are of a healthy um, uh, body weight for them, who get seven to eight hours sleep a night and who don't smoke. But these five sort of indicators that are off that, that when I did my PhD were sort of um, uh, hallmarks, if you like, of healthy living, like 
less than three percent of the population actually engaged in all five of these things. And again, your listeners are, I'm sure, are probably in the minority of of those who would actually do these behaviours. So that might seem sort of um, a bit odd to them, but it's it's so not what the majority of people sort of do. So I found that actually really eye-opening as a person who, um, who that's sort of the way that I live my life, you know, a lot of that, that stuff that we were just talking about that I was mentioning. Um, but fundamentally as well, Alex, you know, as a nutritionist and um, with my science background and my phys ed background going in um, to these workplaces, asking them about, I guess, the utility of workplace intervention programs that focused on healthy eating and focused on physical activity, just how um, they just uh, did nothing, did absolutely nothing for the health of the uh, workers in there. And the most important things to the workers was that they were valued members, valued members of their um, of their workplace, valued by their managers and their peers and also their sort of the higher up mm. in in the company but also that you can change everything but if you don't change the environment so it's less stressful for the for the employee then you're not going to really put a dent in in anything like no no fruit bowl in a workplace is <laughs> going to help fix an environment of stress and and things like that so i think that was really that was interesting for me because you know i to probably to that point, I you know I was a, and still am a real big believer in the power of diet, but diet only does so much. Right, the environmental yes. sort of the environment isn't set up right. A hundred percent. And if you think of fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system activation. If you are in that as a lawyer, let's say, who typically would do a twelve to fifteen hour day, which is tragic in itself, but we can leave that aside. But if you were in fight or flight for twelve to fifteen hours a day, um, that is switching off a lot of your body's energy towards the fight or flight, and um, and your digestion's going to be crap. It doesn't matter how many gut protocols you try, yes. you know, nothing's going to work. Yes, and I feel like it's really like with my work. So I work with a lot of women around our age. I'm putting us in the same age bracket because I would sure say we, we are. Yeah, 40, yeah, 48 next month. Yeah, there you go. So very, yeah. very similar. Um, is that we're probably like when I ask women about their stress load, like they're very um, – half of them aren't even aware actually because they're just so used to it. So you have these sort of personality types. One, the lawyer, the aforementioned lawyer who is who thrives on stress but doesn't know sort of when that sort of balance tips for them. And it just, because it does happen eventually if you lead a life where you're constantly in that fight or flight, you can only do that for so long. You can only be resilient for so long before it sort of catches up with you. Um, or other, the other thing they do is they sort of play that comparison game of, well, I'm not as stressed as my mate Jean over here, who's got five other things sort of going on. So I, it can't possibly be that bad for me, you know, like we almost underplay it. Uh, and so we're not very good at recognizing stress, I think. Mm. No, we're really not. And and I think we're also um, not really good at recognizing uh, how far reaching the impact is when we're chronically doing too much and too go, go, go. I know for me, probably six years ago, I think I caught myself running across my apartment 
to to get something done. I'm in a two bedroom apartment, Mickey. It's really like running. Yeah. <laughs> Just, <laughs> it was it was a moment, and I remember writing a blog post about it, going, "Okay, need to switch on the mindfulness tap. Need to dip into parasympathetic a couple of times in my work day." Um, because you're, you're right, you know, if it's cultural, if it's the cultural norm, we can be blind to how suboptimal it is. Yeah. And I feel like because of that, because you can actually get away with it for a period of time and it's just how resilient are we and, and whatever gives us this resiliency is, you know, there's a range of different factors, right? And and you'll know um, well, you know, the the different biological and sort of social factors that that build either build our resiliency or help us hold it. But but you can't like it doesn't it's not forever. And then of course you get that 98 year old woman who has a whiskey every day and smokes and says that's what made give got her to 98 or whatever. But that is not the majority of people. You know, eventually um things, you know, things um can go awry. So it's just trying to prevent that happening, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And and so let's talk about the majority of the people you now help, um, women 40s, 50s and beyond, going through these big life graduations, as the gorgeous Lara Bryden calls it, rather than menopause as a medical condition, uh, which I just love the reframe there. Um, what do you wish we knew going into perimenopause years um, for that weight um uh, stabilization uh, while our hormones start to taper off because I was speaking to a friend the other day. She's like, and this, where did this come from? Pointing at this new little friend she had around her tummy. And um, and she was feeling really down. You do feel weighed down when you're not your normal self. And this is not about shaming people who have additional, um, you know, higher BMIs or anything like that, but it is about just feeling vibrant and vital in the body you have and recognizing when it goes awry and it can be really destabilizing emotionally not just physically Partially, Alex and I think you really raise a good point there is that it's feeling comfortable in your skin and feeling that vibrant energy that you're so used to feeling and suddenly you just don't feel the same and then uh simultaneously your body does change as well you know and some of the sort of I guess hallmarks of that graduation um from sort of um or into sort of perimenopause and menopause is that if you don't sort of take steps to um uh help uh improve your body composition I guess for want of a better way of, of sort of saying it we lose muscle mass that we had in our limbs so we become we can become like sort of depending on your original body shape you can you either become skinnier or you become softer uh legs and arms and butt as well like we lose that sort of womanly shape and we start storing fat around the middle and it, we do get that um different sort of fat distribution and and I think one of the key things is that, you know, the for because of the hormonal changes and the changes in our muscle mass and the way that we can start to lose it after the age of 35, we can't use the same tactics to get into shape the way that we did when we were younger. You know, like you can't just cardio your way out of it or just stop eating you know, for a period of time, like a lot of people just say, you know, I just, you know, I just didn't eat as much and I lost the weight and it was fine. Like mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem to work anymore. And it's 
because of the stress on the metabolism, you know, like every, so when people often are chasing like a fast metabolism or, or wanting metabolism booster, whereas, whereas the things that we, or the tactics we, we would typically use to get us back into shape no longer work because they're placing additional stress on the metabolism and that's actually the issue because you can only do that for so long and so and when they don't work what do we do we we try and push a bit harder and we fast longer and we restrict more and we do more cardio whereas instead we need to sort of take our foot off the accelerator we need to sort of pull back almost do the opposite of what our um, so the limbic brain would have us do and um, and relieve a lot of the stress that's sort of placed on us. And I wish that more women knew that, actually, because I think then that they would have a starting point to then go on and do the things that do help improve body composition, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so can I ask you about tennis then as a 47, nearly eight-year-old? Because coming out of SIRS, so obviously a a very complex chronic um, inflammatory illness, not fun, but I want to ask you about your perception of hard exercise um, instead of just the exercise. So think of a person who's like pounding it on a treadmill on the gym, hating every minute. Is that more psychologically and physiologically stressful than the person jumping around a tennis court in their local comp still actually working as hard but literally would not want to be anywhere else in the world and you would have to drag me off unable to breathe um, to make me stop playing tennis? Like are those two circumstances is one better than the other is one okay please tell me one's okay (laughs) you know what it's such a great question and I think the real difference is in that psychological piece actually because physiologically like it like the physiological changes that occur when you're doing a an equal exercise um an exercise of sort of equal intensity let's say an equal duration um obviously if it was um everything else let's just say everything else is equal they're not different, actually. But the mental fatigue of doing something you really hate rather than something that brings you joy, like that is that is so different. And the only thing that I would say is that as a 47-year-old woman or 46-year-old woman, it's funny mm-hmm. you mentioned running because <laughs> that, that's what I do, um, yeah. is that it's just the recovery piece changes. Mm. And that's that's the thing that changes. And I, I hear a lot about these things that women in perimenopause just should not do. You know, women should not do this, engage in um, high intensity exercise of long duration. We shouldn't do X, Y, Z. But I think from an exercise perspective, yes, there's definitely things that we should be, that ideally we'd be doing. Um, and I would encourage a woman to do um, to help with the body composition and, and bone mass changes that occur. But you've got to do what brings you joy as well. And it's actually, it's the difference really as me as a 27 versus a 47-year-old, let's just say, you know, 20 years apart is probably the recovery that you need in between. But you can't just go and do it again tomorrow probably. Just need to wait a few more days. Yes, and I notice my HRV tanks and I'm much more likely to have an insomnia night after tennis comp um and I was talking to someone at my 30-year reunion so people like a sea of people our age and she's a big netballer and she shared that yeah that that side of things the recovery side of things is much more challenging and 
it's really confusing because there's a lot of people saying, okay, have a really good carbohydrate meal after exercise or have ketones. After, I mean, they're very different um, recommendations and people get confused about what to do in our age group to support that um, message to the brain saying, yay, good job. And now we're safe. We're okay. You can sleep now. Yeah. Oh, that's you. That's such a good point, Alex. Like, and I think from a fundamental diet perspective I mean as we get into perimenopause and I know that you and your listeners will know this is that our carbohydrate needs do change because estrogen although it sort of fluctuates quite wildly at the start um, you know as we transition estrogen drops and with it our carbohydrate sensitivity drops as well so we become more intolerant to carbohydrate and and that is important, even though a lot of women our age probably don't have a, like a ton of carbohydrate either, you know, because we, we took it out like years ago, like <laughs> we were low carb years ago. But, yeah. but I think what can happen is that we, we um, a lot of women sort of think they're low carb and they are in their general diet. But then if they are sort of mindful of what they eat, sometimes being good quote unquote, means under eating. And then so you can only do that for so long. And then suddenly it's all the chips, all the chocolate, all the wine. And then you jump back on your diet again on Monday, you know? So, so those are, um, uh, so, so these are common sort of dietary patterns, if you like, of, of women that I speak to. Um, but if I get back to your sort of recovery piece, like, well, one carbohydrate is essential for, recovery from long duration activity to my mind as well and carbohydrate can help you sleep can help calm your nervous system down um can do all of those really good things uh but then ketones we know are an anti-inflammatory molecule and they can signal um um those types of uh reduction in inflammation in the body too and they are a, a byproduct of fat metabolism so you can use them for for energy too so um, I would say probably that carbohydrate is easier for someone to get their hands on than say a ketone supplement, but but uh, uh, sort of getting the fundamentals right, I think, with, with diets really essential. I don't think you need to carb load necessarily. I think, I think we need to focus on our protein to help with that muscle repair and recovery after spending two hours on a tennis court where you get those micro tears you know in your in your muscles I think we need to sort of focus on protein for recovery get your carbs in after your exercise um, have plenty of vegetables and, and fruit if you tolerate it for phytochemicals uh, to help dampen down inflammation uh, and then live to play another day yeah I'm loving that great um, so in terms of then the muscle piece, because people then get confused about how much protein and then someone else is going to tell them, uh, no, you know, protein is going to be damaging on the liver, on the kidneys or um, protein is inflammatory or, um, you know, such and such people from around the world who live to 100 don't eat that much animal protein, let's say, or there's just so much confusion, Mickey. And I can understand that then bringing on another nutritionist who might tell you something different to what you've been told by someone else can add to the confusion. But what is the science telling us for the main? Because you are across it and ever it it's ever-evolving um, messages in a time where a lot of journals are actually knocking back really good science as well and 
certain people are paying for favourable messages to come out of research, it just becomes so flipping confusing for the average Joe, um, especially at this period of 40 plus where things can go haywire, you feel less in control. As Dr. Carrie Jones says, it's reverse puberty mayhem uh, <laughs> for a little bit there. And um, and I think we need to to focus on what we know for sure is true, right? Rather than what could be, what might work. Like, what do we know for sure? What are, what are the overlaps? Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why we get this message that we overeat protein we don't need to worry about our protein intake, we get enough it's because our intakes are often or very commonly compared to the recommended dietary intake. And the recommended dietary intake values are 0.8 grams per kg body weight per day, which any of the metabolism and protein metabolism experts who actually research in the science of protein will tell you that is woefully low. That is half of what we actually need to thrive. And this is the thing, like people don't, and don't didn't know or don't know that the RDI values are set on sort of survival and not necessarily set on what it takes to thrive. And a lot of the protein recommendation research initially came from sort of college-aged students who, I mean, they're the ones that used to um, kind of earn money, if you like, by taking part in these um, sort of studies to determine what our uh, what our nutrient requirements would be and when you are younger you do require less protein at any one meal to help maximize muscle protein synthesis which is often the thing we think about with protein like the other rules of protein are often ignored and we often think oh you only you know if you get x amount of protein in a meal then that covers your muscle protein synthesis well the amounts to determine what we require come from people who have who very easily assimilate sort of um, protein and, and muscle protein sort of turnover is taken care of. But the older we get, the, the more protein we need to get that message to the brain to help with our sort of um, our muscle repair and recovery. So, um, so the RDIs don't necessarily reflect what we actually need. And protein experts say that we need at least 1.2 grams per kg body weight, but probably closer to 1.6 grams per kg body weight if we're just thinking about muscle protein synthesis alone. But the thing is as well, Alex, is that I think much more about um I think much more about the other roles of protein than just muscle protein synthesis. So a lot of the people I work with, like we think about appetite regulation. We talk about and we think about the role of protein in hormone production and in um, helping with neurotransmitter production and helping the the brain sort of um, feel calm and safe and not get sort of anxious and sort of worked up. I think about blood sugar regulation and, and protein is very good at helping sort of um, keep that blood sugar stable. And so... The so when I'm talking to someone about protein and particularly with fat loss in mind, that the the amounts go up even further. So the amounts for fat loss are sort of based on about two to two point two grams per kg body weight per day. Uh, but if you even look at the research, some some people in physique sort of sports would have you having two point 
two to two point eight grams per kg body weight per day. So there's quite a wow, range. Oh, that's huge. Quite a range. So, so if someone's a bit overweight, um, let's say, um, let's say five foot eight, like a pretty average woman's height, and they're um, ninety five kilos, or let's say a hundred, actually easier to yes. do the math live. Yes. Um, and then, uh, so they really need to lose a good twenty five kgs to get back to a healthy range. Yes. Is that person then needing to eat 200 to 250 grams of protein a day? No. So we're at sort of. So Thank the, you. The, yes. So the so if you do carry um, excess, like quite a bit of excess body fat that you need to lose, then we work on ideal body weight. Yes. I've heard yeah. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon say the same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And it's, it's a much more sort of achievable goal. And the thing is we've got two things Alex, that help stimulate um, muscle protein sort of synthesis and, and um, muscle growth, but also protect our bones. And so one is protein intake, the other one is strength training. And I think both of them need to be, both of them ideally are going to be present in a person's um, sort of regime. Regime is such an awful word, isn't it? But um, in, in, their, in, in their lifestyle in order to help sort of improve their body composition. And you know, like if you really struggle to get in, so for our um our person, if if she struggled to get in, let's say 150 grams of protein a day, um, which would be sort of two grams, let's say, based on her ideal body weight, then then if I'm working with that individual, then I'm like, okay, well, let's try and get you above 100, 110, and then let's make sure you're doing some strength training. You know, so I try to I try to meet people where they're at, even though I have very lofty goals. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I would imagine you have of, secret of where I'd like them to be. Yeah, um, you'd you'd have secret goals for them that they don't even know about yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But and and can I also just say, you know, the what we also know about in science is that there is no good research to suggest that a high protein intake ruins kidneys. And in fact, people with low kidney function actually do better on a higher protein diet than they do a lower protein diet. This we also know from meta-analyses done on kidney function. Um, and, you know, meat is not inflammatory. And I hear this a lot. And it really, like, I, I, I think the where people get this message from is because they look at uh, newspaper articles burgers exactly <laughs> they look at how we eat meat you know and mm. and if we look at epidemiological research which is what is often relied upon to give us these messages um this is population-based research where they're not intervening they're not or they're not like doing a really detailed analysis of of a population's diet they're asking them about their diet like once every eight years and that's a food frequency questionnaire and as it so happens the people who eat the most red meat in these population-based studies are, as you say, they're eating it between a white bun burger with fries and a soda on the side. And those people are also less likely to exercise. They're more likely to smoke. They're more likely to drink alcohol to excess. And they're less likely to eat fruit and vegetables. And if we also look at um, other studies, it shows that people, in fact, who have both the highest meat consumption along with the highest vegetable consumption are actually the healthiest people. And they're the ones that are most likely to um, live a longer life. And we forget, you know, meat is often vilified and um, meat and, and animal protein has a lot of the nutrients that we are short on, like zinc and iron 
B12 is another one. It's got important nutrients for the brain like choline and creatine. And even though you can get, of course, choline from eggs, which is, you know, one of our favorite superfoods, um, we've, it's got cholesterol and we need dietary cholesterol. And whilst meat does contain saturated fat, I, I'm always sort of a bit dumbfounded by one, the idea that saturated fat is in, a, in, in on balance in a healthy diet is certainly not an issue for most people. But meat doesn't contain a lot of saturated fat anyway, you know, like it's about 40% of the of the fat in meat might be saturated and then 60% of that fat is either mono or polyunsaturated you know i think it's very easy to to get very um uh, reductionist in yeah, nutrition and, go, and quite granular and just pick out yeah. the grains that you want to highlight yeah yes yeah and yeah and so for someone who is vegetarian or vegan um what are the best ways? I'm sure you would have clients who are eating those ways for whatever reason. Um, what are some of the things that people can do to prioritize protein there? Because a lot of the options that you see can be often quite ultra processed, and um, and that's a whole other health concern. Never mind getting your protein right. Totally, Alex. And and I certainly don't want to, I, I want to be really respectful of people's dietary choices as well. Um, and the idea that um that animal protein is a is a better source of protein is actually based on science because we get all of those nine essential amino acids and they're more bioavailable to us to be to be used. But it doesn't mean that you can't have a complete diet as a vegetarian or a vegan but you do actually have to be okay then with getting in other supplements I mean there is almost no way around it so I when I talk to my clients the the majority of their protein will be coming from tofu or tempeh um, we'll have edamame beans um, we'll have protein powder and protein powder is protein powder I, I'm actually I'm a complete fan of for people of all sort of dietary um persuasions if you like because it's so convenient actually and and people often shy away from it because it's processed but it's processed in a way that allows us to digest it more easily and for a vegetarian or a vegan protein powder actually provides them with a source that is going to have those nine essential amino acids because it's often fortified and really helps sort of boost boost their protein up um but the other thing that I often recommend, Alex, depending on the individual, is actually to have an essential amino acid drink alongside their meal. Because tofu and tempeh, like you have to eat quite a lot of it to get the same amount of protein that has a spore to get this similar sort of um, protein response. So if you have an essential amino acid drink alongside, it means that you're getting those amino acids that you're lacking in that meal. Um leucine primarily being the being the amino acid that I'm talking about there so so you know if someone has a low appetite for protein or who cannot eat the the quantity that that we suggest then then I'm probably going to suggest an, an essential amino drink um and then of course that's just protein and then you know creatine is another important sort of nutrient and we might supplement there and and um, you just have to be more mindful with supplementing when you're vegetarian or vegan I think yeah, thanks for the advice there. So we've got everybody covered. Um, and then, of course, those amazing B vitamins. Yes. Um, now, 
I want to ask about, um, you, you know, the way that you encourage us to crowd out additional carbohydrate, let's say, is always with a focus on how beautiful and plentiful food can be rather than you have to get it down to 20 grams or whatever. Um, is that something that you just tuned into yourself as a as a human um, when you started to realise that there was a more optimal way um, to achieve that vitality, that body composition? Uh, and how do you how do you sell it to us? Because sometimes people just think, oh, but it's the luteal phase and I just want all the potatoes, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which I always, for the record, always allow myself a one-day luteal, like, cheat day. Awesome. Awesome. Always. And I love it. You know, I think it's actually really important psychologically as a woman I Mm. I completely agree like I think that you can always find your non-negotiables and there is no reason outside of a food intolerance obviously or an allergy that you cannot include what you really love in your diet um and I mean we may get to buffer and trigger foods but so that's sort of a separate thing aside but but how I to sort of answer your first question I was a chubby teenager and um dieted with my mother we went to Weight Watchers and there I found that you could eat all of these types of foods and they really didn't affect your weight at all and that's how I sort of and I recognized quite early on that I was quite a volume eater so I I really enjoy eating a lot of food at once and my stomach gets this the it needs that sort of signal of having a lot of food on board for me to feel satisfied whereas I know not everyone sort of feels that way um and then when it comes to uh, the uh, sort of the abundance of food, if you like, and and um, also incorporating sort of carbohydrates. Like my, I guess my preference for carbs really are in the more sort of um, uh, whole food space, if you like. Like I think uh, getting your carbohydrate from potato, sweet potato, fruit, like these are better options for a lot of people because they also deliver nutrients and your body needs nutrients and recognizes nutrients. Whereas it's very easy to overeat foods, which are much more processed because you're not getting that same, the same nutrients sort of like in at the same time, if you like. And they're a lot more sort of calorie dense, but I don't think that they necessarily need to be off the table. I mean, I love potatoes myself Mm, as well. So good. (laughs) Yeah, so good. But it's, um, but I feel like, Um, it's always opportunity cost when it comes to diet. Like whenever you're choosing to eat one thing, you're sort of choosing it over and above something else. And it's, um, I I think we have to be realistic about about which foods you can continue to include and meet your body composition goals and, 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 be happy with the the idea of having you know a day a month where you you enjoy whatever food that you you love knowing that it's not the last time you're going to eat that food so you don't have to you know go on a complete food bender um I mean if you do that's fine Alex uh but you know <laughs> no it's just it's honestly it's around day 26 27 I've joked with so many friends about this who found that that's their crack point day as well yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, and it's the unashamed one whole packet of corn chips. 
and yeah. I enjoy it. I just sit out on the balcony and looking out and I'm just loving the whole experience instead of shaming myself and freaking yes. out that it's this bad thing that I've done. You know, tomorrow it'll be back to some nice sweet potatoes with the roast chook dinner, like as the usual um, luteal phase carb. And, and I think, you know, this restrictive shaming piece that we, any of us that grew up as I call us the Oprah generation of the talk shows and the new celebrity protocol. And I still remember, I think it was Suzanne Powder with her brown rice protocol. And, you know, I'm pooping like three times a day. And and I remember it was the first diet I followed. And I remember just being this confused teenage girl going, why isn't it working for me? I just actually can't go to the toilet anymore. (laughs) (laughs) and just feeling so bad and then repeat times at least six over the next 10 years of my life feeling ashamed instead of curious and excited about what might change and responding to what was working what wasn't you know just re-internalizing instead of feeling like all the answers are out there and we're a failure if it doesn't look right it's exhausting Oh, it is. And I think you raised such a great point when you described how you enjoy your corn chips, you know, no guilt, no shame, you're enjoying them, you're savoring them, and you're moving on. Whereas because you've gotten rid of the feelings of guilt and the shame, you're not then going to go and down a bag of biscuits because, well, you've ruined it now, you know, and I feel like that's the that's the thing. It's not the act itself that's an issue. It's what happens next. And we catastrophize that one food decision feel like we're a failure then think well I've ruined it now so I may as well xyz and it's very easy to catastrophize our food decisions and I and that's where I feel like a lot of the emotional damage is done and then therefore the physiological damage follows you know Mm, whereas that is so good Mickey we catastrophize one food decision we make it us Yes, um, we do. That's it's awful, isn't it? Just awful. So is this a good time then to talk about buffers and triggers and how we can actually stop that roller coaster emotionally and physically? Yeah, well, so the idea of buffer and trigger foods, when I really like this, and I certainly um, didn't come up with it myself, but Dr. Jade Teeter talks a lot about it. I love Jade. Um, he's yep. amazing, isn't he? Mm. And um and he, um, you know, there. Were, I do think, Alex, that there are some people who who cannot eat some foods because they will always overeat them. And it's not a failure on their part. It is just the way that they are wired. And it's not a character assassination. You're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> it's just it's just what can happen. So, so if you know that you've got certain foods that you will always overeat regardless, then maybe they are better left out of the house or uh, and maybe you enjoy them in an environment where you are less likely to overeat them. But if they're foods that will trigger you to eat more, so those trigger foods, then they're probably best that you don't try and work them into your otherwise sort of, I guess, um, um, healthy eating approach. But then if there are foods that you love that are buffer foods and, and you you know that for you maybe a packet of corn chips is like a buffer to you then um, continuing on in your usual healthy eating approach, then include those other foods that you love. Like we have foods that we love, but some of them will trigger our appetite and some of them will buffer. 
And so, yeah, it's so true. And I think I actually remember Jade being on the show and talking about these. Now that I I think back, 350 shows, it can get um, (laughs) get a bit hazy. Totally. It's so true because if I bake a batch of biscuits, which I would ordinarily only do if it was for us to take to friends and I'm going to have one when everyone's having one because if that is just hanging out with me during my work day, it is definitely a trigger food. Definitely. Oh, yes. One becomes three. Hundred percent. Yeah, totally. And to just maybe do a little bit of reflecting. Like, would that be a good thing for all of us to do? To sit down and think, let me think retrospectively. Let me look back. When and what was it uh, when I did? Did I find it completely impossible to stop? And is there a pattern there on the type of food? that then lets me kind of engineer our pantry, what I make when and under what circumstances, that would be an incredibly useful exercise for people who are struggling in that space. I think so, Alex. And I know that some people listening to this may not experience the type of um, uh, uh, eating behaviour that we're talking about, you know, because and, and that's normal as well like we're all different in, in this but for some people I think it would really be useful to think about the foods that they love and which ones help them buffer their appetite which ones trigger and then so you can still eat what you love but you're more but you're probably going to be more successful if you sort of focus on the foods you love which help buffer your appetite rather than sort of trigger it and I love that reflective piece it's exactly what you know if people have the space to think about it that I would totally recommend that they do Mm. And then to actually sort of design almost against catastrophizing, I think. Yes. By just yes, simply completely. being more aware. Mm. Yes. Because I see so much on social media as well. People are like, oh, you don't have to give up, you know, your favorite foods and you can eat whatever you like. And, and I sort of think. Can you though? <laughs> I don't know that you can. However, what, what I think that people should feel um, excited by is that what they like changes over time as well. You know, we we crave what we eat. So if you're on this new sort of journey of changing your diet, like feel hopeful and feel excited because in about six months time, what you crave will be will be different from what you might be craving now. So, Absolutely. And you've changed yeah. your gut bugs. So they're yes. not- fighting for the the old foods either exactly so mm. you know I just think um uh yeah so those are that's just some of the things which which I think are useful for people to think about yeah brilliant and then so I want to talk um lastly about time restricted eating you could call it um also uh intermittent fasting or however you've heard of it talked about when we're narrowing the window of the time that we're actually actively eating and when you see this really working for people and when you actually see some red flags and it's not working for people yeah so um, it's probably easier to start with the latter group, Alex, about when it doesn't work. And often I have women come to me and they're absolutely fine with their appetite regulation in the morning. But then because they're doing a time-restricted eating where they like just start eating at lunchtime, they finish eating at, say, 8 o'clock, and they're like, the morning's not the problem. I'm fine in the morning. The problem is after lunch or it's after dinner or it's before work 
or they feel full after their meals, but they're still not satisfied. And so they're not recognizing that the fact that they're not eating in the morning is really setting up their appetite and their sort of cravings just be all over the shop in their sort of eating window. And despite the fact that they are, um, they're doing the time-restricted eating protocol to act, to lose weight, because that's generally the reason people do it, they're unsuccessful with it. And I feel like a couple of things are, are happening here. So one, it's it comes back to protein again for me. Like I think protein and fiber really help set you up so well at the start of the day to help manage your blood sugar and manage your appetite later on in the day. And we know that early protein from a research perspective helps control um, blood sugar after um, both that meal that you've just eaten, but also the following meal as well. And we also know, so lunch, lunch is also, you feel better after lunch, but also we know that early protein helps uh, mitigate cravings after dinner that we get. But because people are so uh, are like, but I'm I'm fine in the morning. I don't feel hungry. They almost equate that to this idea that this eating window is sort of working for them. But ah, well, yeah, and you could have thyroid problems if you're not hungry on waking yeah. as well. Like there's yes. probably a few little things that you could uncover. And also, like you know, like as um, I think you and I were talking about off air, maybe like you're getting up in the morning, you're getting the kids off to school, you might be trying to fit in an exercise session, you're organizing your day, you're getting to work, having a black coffee, going to a meeting. You know, you've got a lot going on, so you're distracted, and it's very easy to then get through the morning without actually eating. But then it can all just sort of um, uh, go a bit pear shaped when you do start eating and that's that's the thing that I think that a lot of people fear as well they're like well when I do eat I just feel more hungry um, yeah so yeah so and so that yeah so can I ask then um about people who are under stress because sometimes I think and I, I know I had this experience myself when I tried time-restricted eating at the absolute wrong time which was in the middle of a chronic illness um, and uh, I, uh, it was actually just my well-meaning doctor at the time saying, well, why don't we just try to start them just to try and start shifting this weight? And it was mold weight. It was uh, mainly lymphatic, mainly water, um, and, um, and mainly, um, estrogen fueled from the mycoestrogenic effects of mold and, uh, so really what I needed was to get out of the water damage building, but we were trying anything and everything, but because my body was in survival mode and so stressed, it's almost like when I finally did eat it and it wasn't even that big a, a, um, a, a weight to eat. I think it was a smoothie at 10 AM with lots of phosphatidylcholine and, um, some protein powder with um, leucine so that that, you know, was was being met from the anti-inflammatory perspective. Like it was, a, it was a good smoothie, but it was almost like my body went, oh, thank God there's food. Eat as much as you can. It was almost like this, um, this switch was on, was like go, 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 eat it. And I could not satisfy my appetite no matter what I tried during that time. So is that is that an implication that you see come up sometimes when people are just not well enough to fast, frankly? 
I think so. Like, because fasting works because it's a stress. You know, with anything like exercise is the same thing, a calorie deficit, it's the same thing. Um, it's they're all stresses on your body. So if you're already under stress, and certainly the situation which you just described that you were in, Alex, like like your body sounded so like traumatized by everything else. Um, that when you place an additional stress on, it's the same thing that I was talking about earlier with our metabolism being under stress, like you your body goes from fat like you're wanting to shift fat but it is in total storage mode you know and it is suppressing fat oxidation it is conserving energy where it can and it is holding on to everything and so um when I have someone who is in an incredibly either physically stressed or emotionally stressed state um, fasting isn't my tool of choice. What I would say there is um, there is um, an exception would of course be sort of gut related issues. For some people, actually, fasting is brilliant because and and obviously a, a sensible protocol and and um, ensuring nutrient needs are met. But you know, like if your gut is under considerable stress, then sort of putting a lot of food in a lot of the time isn't necessarily the best approach initially. But um, but I feel like from a stress perspective uh, and a weight loss perspective, like fasting wouldn't be my first first tool of choice. Although it can be very effective, it's not my first tool of choice. Yeah, cool. And so can we have just a couple of little red flags for yeah, maybe fasting's not for you right now versus, oh, that's the sign that it's really working, keep going, this is great. Yeah, great. So I always look for both sort of um, biomarkers, but also these qualitative measures as well. So if you are fasting and have been for a considerable time, but your hunger, is, your appetite is like out of whack, like you're extremely hungry or um, and, and you cannot satisfy it even with like a decent meal or a full meal. Uh, if your energy is unpredictable, so you've either very low energy or you can't, and it's all your, you know, you, you're really good energy, but then you're, you feel crashed the next day. I think that's, you know, and it's a bit of a cycle or, or you're completely low energy. That's another good sign that fasting is probably not working. Um, if you've got really uh, like intense cravings, you know, and your cravings seem to be all over the show. Uh, I think that's another um, sign that fasting might not be working. Uh, if you if you either have disrupted sleep or you can't get to sleep, you can't stay asleep, or your sleep is very light, like and and these are all changes, you know, like mm -hmm. you know that have come after you've had a period of fasting and you're continuing to fast, but then you just start to lose that vibrancy and lose that energy. Your sleep's impaired. I think those are good sort of qualitative signs that that fasting might not be working for you um but then also you know um biofeedback like what it's your like with your weight like if you're doing it from a weight loss perspective and you're no longer losing weight well there's a reason for that you know and so you you do want to sort of look a little bit deeper there as well so there and if you've got hormones if your hormones are out of whack have they might have hormone disruptions. They might lose a uh, miss a, a menstrual cycle or two. Like that's a good sign that your body's under stress. Mm, great tips. And so, if fasting's working, how does it feel? How does it look? 
you've got good energy, you've got good concentration, you sleep really well, your cravings are under control, you feel satisfied after meals, you're not moody and irritable, uh, and and you um, feel happy in your skin, you know, and your body composition is great. Because I think, you know, I and I talk a lot about when fasting doesn't work for people on my social channels and, and things like that, but also want to recognize that for some people it, it does work well. Uh, and my only caveat to that will be because, you know, I'm big on protein is just, you know, make sure your protein is taken care of because that's yeah. really important. And I guess if you're doing an a, a eight or 10 or um, eight or 10 hour window, then, you know, that is where those powders can actually <laughs> become super useful yes. because, you know, you, you then don't often have time to just hoe into like a big steak and a couple of chicken breasts in an eight hour <laughs> period. Um, exactly challenging uh and so i mean do we then uh have uh when we think about the um body composition piece i want to finish with weights because i really think women around the world are getting the message that strength is so fundamentally key to so many things as we get older and uh, and a lot of people think, oh, but I don't have time to add in gym classes. Um, what can it look like for us to actually have a positive benefit um, from home even? Yeah, great question. And I think you always want to start where you're at, you know, because it's all about load and what is going to take for you to get the load stimulus, Alex, will probably be different from me just based on our just, I don't know, our different exercise histories. And you can absolutely get a good, like particularly from if you're sort of new to it, like you can do press-ups on your knees or on the, or against the wall. You can do wall sits or squats. You can do lunges. Um, you can do um, uh, tricep dips. Like all of this stuff can be done at home, 10 to 15 minutes to start, and then just work your way up. So it's not necessarily that you have to do X number of reps or, or lift X sort of kilos of weight. It's all about you need to feel the the fatigue and the load of what you're doing because that's telling you that you're providing the stimulus you need to help build muscle and to help protect bone and and that's the thing and I think the, the key thing would be to progress that over time so you may start with body weight and then you might um, fill up a couple of um, drink bottles with water and pop them in a backpack and squat with that you know or you might pick up a rock that's in your garden and and squat with that I would always recommend of course that if you could at least follow along with a YouTube or learn about form in some way shape or form I think that would be really beneficial to help prevent injury um, but it doesn't have to be in a gym and it doesn't have to be sort of scary um, mm, but there I, are so I, many exercise physios sorry I just cut you off um Mickey. no Oh, good. Um, oh, good. But there are so many exercise physios and strength and conditioning coaches who provide free guided content now online. It's yes. incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, just thank you, COVID, at least for that, because yes. that that's really where that exploded. And um, 
my son said, oh, mom, I found this guy. We need to do his leg day. And it was just 10 minutes, but we both nearly died. By the end. <laughs> it was so intense. <gasps> Amazing. And, and, and it was just so great that we could just like, oh, yeah, we've got some time now. Let's do it. And, um, and smashed out 10 minutes. I think we all need to actually become a lot more realistic about what we're consuming online as well. Like, uh, you know, have a look at your, your screen time stats. And if you've chalked up four hours today on socials, scrolling away, minus 10 minutes for your physical health. Just start oh, there, right? 100%. And the thing is, do not rely on motivation because no, it never comes. That is, it exactly. never comes. You have to act to feel motivated. And you know that, and, and your listeners probably know that as well. But we have to remember that. Like I exercise most days and I I 90% of the time I want to do it, but there are times when I don't, but I just know how I feel afterwards. And actually that's enough. I, I feel much more uh, ready for my day, if you like. But just remember that even if it's new to you and even if you really don't want to do it, like you can feel good after you've done it and then eventually you'll that the feeling of sort of um to feel motivated will come the more you get into it yeah because you're then motivated by being able to be more in touch with the other side yes than at the beginning of such an endeavor when you're just starting out you're like oh it's hard and I can't and it's sore and that's that you are never going to find motivation feeling those feelings but I mean it just it amazed last night was the start of the tennis term I hadn't hit a ball for two weeks um, because it was school holidays and it was just a busy time. So I was doing other types of exercise. And so today I can feel muscles in my arm that I had lost my acquaintance with and um, and just thought, oh, I think I actually need to do a bit more conditioning for upper body to mitigate that kind of pain because I certainly don't want to feel that way. And I think this is where for me as um, as a busy middle-aged chick, uh, with that convergence that we talked about earlier on where there's just lots of things being thrown at you in life at the same time, finding something that's joyful enough for you to connect to um, can replace motivation in a really healthy, um, in a healthy positive psychology way as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm. Oh, Mickey, I could talk to you for hours. I think uh, it's been just wonderful. Really, I mean, really, it's been a, a look at the basics, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has, Alex. And I, I, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Like, I love just chatting with someone else um, on the similar wavelength, talking about just these really important things. Because I think you can't. Like, I often listen to podcasts not to learn information, but just to sort of reaffirm what I know and just get little insights. Um, so I hope that anyone listening today, um, that would have just helped them sort of reaffirm some of those foundation things. Oh, I know it would have. And it's really just about refocusing and checking back in. And these yeah. sorts of conversations help you do that. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute blast. Oh, I have loved it, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast 
and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.